I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Times. To find out more... Head to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times. Now with goals. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast. I'm Gabriel Marcotti and today is a special day because we have visiting from us from the great northeast of England, George Calkin. He will be with us in the studio and obviously, I am extremely delighted, as I am, to, by the fact that Matt Hughes also made the trek into town to be with us, and uh, so did Roy Smith. But there's more, because in our debate today, we're going to be joined down the phone by Matthew Syed. We're going to be talking about youth development, realistic expectations of what we can expect, and I suspect a little bit of nature versus nurture as well. We're also going to be taking a look at Swansea's new managerial appointment, and uh, we're also going to be talking through the weekend's action, starting, of course, with the two juggernauts of English football, Liverpool and Manchester United at Anfield. Right off the bat, Husey, why was this game so bad. My friend Mark Chapman, who presents Match of the Day 2, tweeted at halftime and basically said, and I'm paraphrasing there, this game bites the big one. We're going to go and show some Sunday League action instead because it really is that bad. And this is a guy who's paid to promote football, of course. Yeah, it wasn't a good game. Bottom line is two pretty average teams. United, very defensive. Were they really that defensive well, again? No. Under Van Hall, that is their kind of right. modus operandi, really, to defend first. They're going to Anfield, so they're going to try and first and foremost stay in the game Liverpool in a state of transition haven't got any goal scorers I think what was the start of their their starting lineup had scored six Premier League goals yeah. between them all season which is astonishing not so good it's, it's no surprise they didn't score yesterday is it against the best defence in the country if only they had a big prolific expensive centre forward well, they do, but they don't. They don't play him because Brendan's on him, and Brendan isn't there. Brendan's in the Sky Studio, um, telling us about all the signings that he, he was about make, to yeah. make, but that he, <laughs> he was scuppered by the evil transfer committee. This Benteke thing, all right? At what point does it become a problem? Because I'm a Kloppite. I, I, I like Jurgen Klopp. I want him to do well. I, I'm on board. I, you're looking cynical, but I think no, you no, are I'm also well. a Kloppite. Okay, yeah. all right. We're part of Jurgen's army, but by the same token, there's the sort of eternal diatribe between having a system and getting players to fit into it and picking your system based on the players you have. If you have this guy and he is your big signing and he's your stud center forward and given his age profile he could be for the next 10 years, 
Should he be doing more of an effort to get him on? Or? Yeah, I think there's a curiosity. What's he doing? There's a curiosity to. Uh, Hughes is right that Liverpool lack goals. I think what's really interesting about the fact that Liverpool lack goals is that if you look at most of their games, they seem to have about f- like 23, 24 shots every single time they play. If you speak to your evil number wiz- wizards, they will tell you that all of those shots are Coutinho long ranges and they are from terrible positions. They're shooting from bad places, Liverpool, which explains that... The 0.8 rough expected goals, according to Michael Kelly. There you go. Discrepancy. Look at that. Isn't the game, the game is so modern. Oh. Yeah, so if you look at that, that's the discrepancy there. Lots of shots, lots of attacking play, no goals, it's just they're shooting from bad areas. Benteke... I reminds me, and this is this is not necessarily the perfect comparison. Dortmund, when they saw, when they lost Lewandowski, brought two strikers in under Klopp. Those two strikers were Gab. Pierre Emerick, Aubameyang, Adrian oh, Ramos, and Chiro Immobile. Of which Aubameyang obviously is doing brilliantly now. Adrian Ramos, who plays in a similar way to Benteke, he is a big, powerful, sent proper centre forward, proper bull centre forward. Didn't do very well at all at Borussia Dortmund. Neither did Immobile. And I wonder whether Klopp, who looked at Benteke to fill that gap. That, Ram- that they eventually signed Ramos for. I think Klopp doesn't think Benteke can do that, but you are right. If you have a shortage of goals, if you have a player like Benteke, who is relatively easy, easy to service, Benteke needs balls into the box, either to feet or from the wing. And Liverpool have so many natural wingers, so it's a no-brainer. They don't have, they don't have that many natural wingers, but they do have two very attacking fullbacks who can provide width, in Klein and Moreno. It seems odd that, they have, that he seems to have decided that that is just not going to work. So it seems odd. It also seems self-defeating because he may yeah. not be the ideal centre forward for Klopp long term because he's not he's not mobile and he doesn't move enough. Off, he doesn't get outside the penalty area, does he? Really? But given you need goals, given Sturridge is never fit, given Firmino is not a striker, um, surely you play him this season, get through the season, and worry about the yeah. kind of the system it's, and the model next year. It says a lot about Liverpool's resources that they. I mean, it's also something that I absolutely love that they they brought on a centre half to play up front for the last few minutes. You don't see that enough <laughs> anymore. I mean, no. it's one of. The, I mean, I, I I love that. I genuinely love that. But it's also quite embarrassing, really, when you think about it. Bringing on Stephen Corker to play Are up front. The, yeah, there's 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 a. It, I always remember Gerard Houllier at, at Arsenal once. Threw on, had five. They were one 0 down Liverpool, and they had. Um, I'm giving things away here. They had five strikers on the pitch at the end. I remember thinking, even as a teenager, you're sort of thinking, just you've got loads of strikers on the pitch, people standing in the box. Yeah. That doesn't mean you're going to score a goal. The point is, you have to create chances, yeah. no matter how many strikers you've got. It's a sign. It is a sign of desperation. It's not great. I think Sturridge, Benteke, and the fact that Klopp doesn't like him is an issue. Sturridge gives, through no real fault of his own, Sturridge gives them gives them an enormous problem, just in terms of what to do with him. Because he's not there. But, but what? It's a, it's a really difficult one for any manager with a player who can be that good when he's not injured, what do you do? Do you buy another striker and just assume that Sturridge isn't going to be there? Do you hope that Sturridge can come back and not go and spend a lot of money? It's, that's a really genuinely difficult issue. Yeah. And, and you're right, I mean, it, it, it was a poor game, but Liverpool were by far the better team in the first half, and what they didn't have, they didn't have movement, they didn't have movement in the box, they didn't have somebody at the, on the end of chances, they didn't have people, someone running running onto those chances, onto the bulls in, the, in that part of the field. Sturridge, you think, would be able to do that. Benteke doesn't fit into that system naturally, I don't think. But it feels self-defeating to have that to have that capability of scoring goals on the bench not being played. George, I want to ask you about two guys with northeast roots who you would have seen sort of in previous incarnations and who yeah. now become mainstays for for Liverpool and, and for England. And that's Henderson and, and, and Milner. I mean, Milner came from Leeds, but obviously he spent, yeah. spent time at Newcastle. I really, really like Henderson. I like him a lot more than Milner, but I like Milner too. But I'm just wondering, are, are these modern, have they developed into the type of players you expected them to when, when you saw them when they were younger? Because it, it strikes me that Milner was more about quality, perhaps, and when, when he was younger. Not that he lacks it now, 
but now it seems more about sort of tactics and, and, and positioning and filling holes. And whereas I think Henderson, he showed a lot of personality to me when, when he was younger, uh, when, when breaking in, but yeah. today it seems to me that he's he's kind of being asked to do too much in that that Liverpool midfield. I mean, are they kind of where you expected them to be? Can you talk about what they were like when they were younger? Henderson, when he broke into broke into things at Sunderland, I think there was a you know there was a sense that he had that he I mean that he could develop, but there's also a sense of not quite understanding what his role what his role was. He should score more goals. He should be able to tackle. There was a kind of funny, famous story about Steve Bruce going into the dressing room after after one defeat and saying, "What is it that you actually do, son?" And I think. <laughs> Since he's moved to Liverpool, it's clear what he can do, and he's—I mean—he's developed—he's developed into a really into a really fine player. Now, whether he, whether he's doing too much, whether you know whether the captaincy is too much, I don't know because I don't see them enough to to talk about that. But I'm very pleased to see the player that he's developed into. Milner has always been about running. He's become far more than that and has become more effective. I think, and it probably says a lot about the coaching at Newcastle that there didn't seem to be much end product onto the at the end of his game. He was played on the wing. Um, he didn't look like a natural winger for all the speed that he had and of course as so many players do he goes somewhere else and and immediately becomes more effective or over time becomes more effective it's a Newcastle effect well sadly yeah <laughs> I think they're, they're both victims of their versatility mm. and work ethic yeah. and really positive attitude in a good way and, I mean if you ask James Milner if he's here today he would still say he wants to be an attacking central midfielder, really, but he, he's barely been allowed to be because he's always kind of fits in and does does a job, covers on the left, covers on the right, even covers in in the two deeper roles. And Henderson's the same almost because of Liverpool's shortages in other areas of the pitch. He's, as you say, has to do too much, and they both they'll both do it very willingly because they are both um, very good professionals and, and good blokes, to be honest. I think what Hughesy says about being cursed by versatility is a really good point. That that both and there's a lot of that at Liverpool generally. There's a lot of players who are quite good at a few things mm. but there's not that many who are outstanding at one thing like Emre Chan's another quite a good like Emre Chan's quite a good holding midfielder he's not a bad well, he's another guy who's played like, who played centre back yeah like, he when I was younger he yeah. played right back he played he's a, he's a good, Emre Chan good footballer no question about that but doesn't doesn't you don't look at him and think he is your kind of number one pick to play this exact role and to do this exact job and I think there's a lot of that at Liverpool the one thing I'd say about Milner and Henderson both should theoretically be perfect for Klopp why? Both because good. they're all fluid and they can do a bit of everything. Well, no, they, they're jazz. both very, very good at playing a press. Right. So very is Lallana. So is, is, an, is an This is a weird thing to say. Lallana, who has no end product whatsoever, is an excellent presser of the ball. There you go. That's a. That is a. thinly veiled. This is, probably, this is probably the wrong thing to say in this company, but isn't pressing the ball the most overrated and easy thing to do? So, yes. I can press the ball, but I'm. Terrible at football, but I can run yeah, around them. No, that's I mean, absolutely yeah. right. It is, yeah. I, and, I, and I can do a, do what I'm told by a shouty German. I imagine. <laughs> I, I <can> imagine <laughs> you'd be excellent. I, I should at be that, playing for yeah. Liverpool. Should be. No, you are. Yeah, you are right. Pressing is, is should be a is, is should be a given. Really, it's not a skill. <laughs> well, pressing is an is an it's in, a component. It's, but it's an not an essential it's component. Skill, yeah. I think people have kind of overrated it because if you can play football, you can break a press. But if you speak to managers, and, and there'll be managers out there who, and I suspect Klopp might be one of them, who will tell you that Benteke can't press. I don't think anyone can't press. I think some players won't. Why does he think he can't press? Because he's so big and like I don't know I don't know I'm not saying I, I don't know why but right. there, there are managers out there who think that certain players can't press here's what you can do between now and the end of the show you can uh, come up with a player of Benteke's size and body profile who's really good at, at pressing a little little, ta- little, no, no, little task for you right. you'll get a couple of house points for that I want to turn it over to Wayne Rooney because obviously it's now five goals in, in four games after going through uh, a, a tough spell Van Hal 
made it a point of prize. And, and, and by the way, we all, we all saw what happened with, with Neil Custis. It does seem to me like, I, I don't know how to read this. I don't know if I should read it as if Van Hal put so much face in Rooney because he has nobody else, or if he really thought that Rooney would, would somehow turn the corner. Has he turned the corner, or did he just score a really important goal? He's been playing better gradually over time. I think I was here two weeks ago after he scored the brilliant goal against Swansea. And when well, we got the whole tech, technical dissection of what he did from Julian Lawrence. That's right, yeah, he could probably do that. I certainly couldn't. And but not, you can press better than Julian <laughs> Lawrence, I'm sure. Undoubt- no, you can't. Undoubtedly. Jules, is a, Jules properly presses. He's a buddy to play with, Jules. He, he makes you run around and stuff. You, know, you asked him to come up with somebody who has Benteke's body type and presses well. Julian Lawrence does not have Benteke's body type. <laughs> he does not, no. Um, before I was so rudely interrupted, Sorry. I was better. So Rooney... I don't think he was ever as bad as people were saying. He, he's always had these lulls in his career, and he had an extended one first half of the season, really, not helped by playing in a team that were stifled and passed the ball sideways all the time. It must be very frustrating to play up front for Man United because you just don't get any service. It's good that he's hit a little bit of form, but I still think United need more attacking options. That's absolutely right. But, I mean, they're, they're incredibly ponderous. I mean, they are absolutely yeah. ponderous. And, um, and you saw them at their best. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I saw them at, at Newcastle last week, and it was a good game, which was amazing in every respect. Because I haven't seen any any good games there either. But they're they're incredible. And I've I've seen a couple of their European games, and they're so slow and so ponderous. But I Rooney Rooney has still got those instincts. But I don't think he's you know I think he's lost his sharpness in the same way. And I think Tony Cascarino made that point for us that saying that you know Rooney's thirty now, but thirty is no longer the peak in in the Premier League. Thirty years past it. I mean. That's possibly slightly harsh, but the sort of 28, 26, 27 is the sort of age when you're looking at players to peak now. And I think he's just not the player that he was. I think he's a different kind of player. It's, it doesn't it's, mean he's not good. It's that but he's old, not the same. It's that old football thing of of not wanting to accept that people age. It happened with Gerrard that that there's this sort of, sort of idea that that they should be sort of immortal and be their 27, 28 year old selves forever. They're not. Rooney is not as good as he used to be. That's just a. There was a lull, Hughes is right, the first half of the season he was particularly poor. I don't know whether he can call like four months a lull, it's a bit longer than a lull. But yeah, it was a particularly poor patch of form. But Rooney ultimately isn't quite as good as he used to be and he, he is going to continue to not be as good as he once was. And we can't continually say, oh, well, you know, Rooney's going to be back. Rooney, the Rooney that existed when he was 25 is not returning because Wayne Rooney's not 25 anymore. That's not coming back at yeah. all. The one thing I wanted, I did the radio yesterday, I was at Stoke, not watching the Liverpool game. But someone, I think it was Robbie Savage said um, that Rooney's kind of, Van Hal needed his captain and Rooney's, you know, he's done what a captain does. What a captain does not prevent the manager getting into a crisis in the first place. You can't say that he's been a captain when Van Hal's in trouble if he wasn't being a captain beforehand, can you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, he has responded at a time when United were seriously, and the manager was seriously under pressure. So that is to his credit. I think and you're right; he's not at his best. But equally, if we'd been here ten years ago, would we have said when Rooney's still Man United England captain, age of thirty? Given he yeah, came into true, the yeah. team at yeah. sixteen, given his body type, given his various off-field scrapes, I think he's done pretty well to. Um, extend his career as, as far as it has and um, I hope he gets those six goals and catches Sir Bobby by the end of the season Only with one other point you know, we criticise managers when they make mistakes and I'm wondering if maybe we should deliver a little bit of praise to Louis Van Gaal because he's so likeable and kind to the media he's supposedly all conservative and boring right but it's nil-nil you're away from home to Liverpool he could have kept it at nil-nil right instead he sends on Mata and Memphis two really attacking players, and he goes for it. Does that earn him any kind of praise, or does it just earn him a stern rebuke for not playing those guys in the first place and subjecting us to Lingard instead? 
They scored with their only shot on target. But he put it, he put the good guys on, right? No. But yeah, but in a very very average game, he I mean, yeah, but he went but, for it, right? Well, went for it. I mean, it's like went for it. That makes it sound slightly more dramatic and exciting, and entertaining, and daring and adventurous than it was when it wasn't. I'm not sure Matter. I love Matter. I'm not actually sure he's necessarily an attacking substitution, is he? Matter not always. Matter's there to retain the ball. Sorry, Louis. I apologise. Re- I'm really trying. All right, let's move to the Britannia, Stoke and Arsenal. Obviously, this is a fixture with some history. It was kind of another dull game. Um, yeah, it was really in, bad. In, in many ways. You were there. I was there. And you were there with Robbie Savage. We were on the radio. Really really I was on the radio, <laughs> yeah. Okay, just um, to clarify. Just to make sure. Uh, the, both, both goalkeepers were excellent, but the game itself was terrible. Hughesy, if I was to put to you this argument that, okay, so Arsenal weren't great, but Arsenal were also without Ozil and Sanchez and Casoyla, arguably their three most skillful players, plus Coughlin, who for some reason is very important for him. Um, <laughs> no, but he is. He's very important to his Arsenal team. So going and you know, not playing as well as you might otherwise, I mean, it's, it's a pretty good alibi. And should we maybe instead praise them for showing grit and determination and mental toughness and all those things that, you know, Arsenal being a soft, froggy Southern team supposedly lack? Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think this Arsenal team is soft. If they concede a goal away from home, that's an issue for them. So it's more sort of a bit of a, a mental issue rather than you know physical softness. They're not. They're not. I mean, Flamini, Mertzaka, Czech, Joel Campbell. You know, these pretty physical, imposing specimens. So they're, they're not going to get bullied in the way that they did, and they showed that yesterday. They're sort of almost teasing us, aren't they? We were, we're desperate, although we're enjoying the unpredictability of the Premier League and the title race. We're kind of almost waiting for a team to just stamp their authority on it, and Arsenal haven't quite done that. City have wobbled, and they've not quite taken advantage, which um, you know is going to leave us with a really interesting three months. But if you're an Arsenal fan, I guess you're just wanting that little bit more because they've got decent points there, but they've got some really tough away games to, to finish the season. They've got to go to go to Everton, they go to Manchester twice, Spurs, West Ham. They've won one of their last six away games. If they're going to win the league, they need to start turning some of these draws in, into victories. That's amazing, that, isn't it? Arsenal, so what was that? They, they've won one of their last six away games. Yeah. Man City haven't put back-to-back wins together since October. Mm. Yeah. Incredible. Away from home, yeah. Wow. Must be why Leicester are top of the table. The, the one thing that struck me yesterday was that there was a bit of a... We've all seen that... Everyone knows about like, the whole stoke Alona thing and the, how Mark Hughes has, to his immense credit, sort of turned Stoke into a much more attractive side. Uh, which isn't always the case, but is broadly true. The thing that struck me on an extraordinarily cold day at the Britannia mm. when not tell us again, was it cold? It was absolute. I'm torn yeah. as to whether hard Yorkshireman, ladies and gentlemen. I did a piece for Saturday's paper about um, you know why Stoke, why Arsenal so bad at Stoke, and tried tried to find tried to speak to people at Arsenal around Arsenal about why this was, and one of the reasons that they kept coming out with was it's very windy. It wasn't actually, do you know what, I would have been, I would have been glad of a bit of wind. It made me laugh. It, was, it is um, windy. It is windy. It is windy. That open but the stadium yeah. gusts in. In the same way as Sunderland, it distracts teams that there's always quite a lot of litter on the pitch. Yeah, it's, <laughs> the, it's, it's the great intro, you want to do, there was a lot of rubbish on the pitch, and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, the, um, yeah but it was, it really was extremely cold. But the thing that struck me was that you had these patches where, where Stoke were playing really nice football, and then Arsenal were being incredibly sort of dodged, dodged and resilient. And then you went into the press conference and you heard Wenger praising, praising the fighting spirit of his side and Mark Hughes saying how, how, how beautiful that Stokes football was. And it was a bit like the entire world had been turned upside down. <laughs> You're always looking for sort of, you know, finally there'll be a good English or Welsh manager. 
Or Welsh. <laughs> how, how often have you heard someone in well, the pubs no, and clubs? Because I was going to make a point about Mark. <laughs> well, you know, Laurie Sanchez, you know, he's brought, we discussed Chris Coleman many times and, you know, how he could have been so much more. But anyway. <laughs> Good Welsh manager. That long wait for Okay, I would have said British manager, manager, but then y'all would have thrown Fergie back into my face or, or somebody else. So You I, want to know why whether Mark Hughes is better than we all give him credit for? Kind of. And I want to know if, in the eyes of the big clubs, he hasn't been permanently disqualified by his uh, by his experience at City, which wasn't actually that bad, was it? I don't it think terrible. it's the thing at City that, that puts people off. I think partly his nationality, despite the fact we are all waiting <laughs> for, for the next great Welsh manager. But also, I think I think it's his Blackburn team that puts people off more than anything. It's the reputation of that Blackburn team. He's are been, you serious? He's been sidetracked. I think so, yeah. I think there is well, a bit exactly, of that. club's so thick that they're like, oh, look, seven years ago, this team played rubbish football. Okay, let's never appoint him again. I mean, what? Are you, reputation stick in football, you know that. Yeah, but but yes and no. I mean, Goose Hiddink. Ranieri. He, Ranieri, it was, ele- it was 11 years ago that he, he made some, some changes to his team and he came <laughs> back and it was always the tinker man. Yes, but that's Ridiculous. also that's also because y'all are an island and he went away. He was kind of frozen in time in 2004. <laughs> that's all you remember. But... I mean, Hughes has been here for a while. We've seen him, right? Mark Hughes has always been a very good manager. Um, What's the problem? Is it is it Kia? I think the problem is twofold. Like the problem is the very biggest clubs, they like a bit of stardust, a bit of sexiness. He he is not that. He will never be that. He only played for He's Manchester United person. in Barcelona. Yeah, but in terms I mean, of the way he... And Bayern. In terms of his career, career trajectory, the biggest clubs... Don't appoint managers from Stoke or Blackburn. They just they just don't. And Mark Hughes' persona is he's a straight talking guy, but he's qu- quite slightly dour. So I think there's that. There's partly the big clubs just don't even look there. Secondly, although his career has been very good, he did have that rocky period of two or three years where he was almost a bit guilty of being over ambitious. His agent tried to get him the Chelsea Chelsea job. Told him he's going to get the Chelsea job. It's his advisor, not his agent. Then, then, get he, it right. then he then he screwed over Fulham. To but get, he did really to well get, at Fulham. Get, get all these crappy players at Fulham. No, but he, walks, finish... he walks out to, keep, to go to QPR, didn't he? Wait. Um, no, he, he walked out not to. He walked out because he, he thought he was going to get Chelsea, didn't he? And then he yeah. ended up getting QPR. Yeah. He didn't get Chelsea. Okay. But I think his career's gone very well apart from that that period, right. and that, that's cost him really. I mean, so I he th- should just give up on, no, on having. Do, a, no, but I, no, I mean, I'm about to say realistically, will will he get? A top six shot. No, it's not likely. No, I th- but this, I, th- I think he recognised. I think he said it himself that he recognised that he had to attempt to put down roots at Stoke and make a go of it and think of this. I mean, to get a job in the Premier League is pretty good for one thing for anybody, and to kind of focus on it and concentrate on it if he stays there long. I mean, the way they're playing at the minute. I mean, I, I don't think you can, I don't think you can underestimate what he's done because he's 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 completely changed the narrative of how we look at Stoke you know now now it used to be a touching what do you call it a touching post touching post is that the right word yeah, I think so. touch Staging touchstone post. well going to Stoke on a cold oh, right. windy day whatever used to be you know used to be kind of one of the great cliches of the Premier League and now it's very it's still very difficult to go there but for very different reasons mm. they're a good football team so he's he's sort of reinvented himself a bit and I think if he the longer he stays there doing that Right. There's a gonna, the, reason gonna... that, the reason that big clubs won't look at it is, is partly the fashion thing and that can't be ignored. But it's also that if you're Man City or, or Man United or Arsenal or Chelsea or whoever, you want someone who has the specific skill set that is apl- applicable to you. And getting Jonathan Walters and Jeff Cameron to play good football isn't what the manager of 
Chelsea has to do. Oh, well, but come on. But you, all you, all, all those you clubs, for, for very valid reasons, will only look at managers who've done it in Europe and been successful yeah. in Europe. Yeah, all right, no. That's, and he that's, obviously that's, hasn't done that because he hasn't had the opportunity, yeah. which is unfair. So you but, are in a catch-22, you know, but life. there is a logic behind that catch-22. But I want to leave this segment with this. Which of these three British managers would you like to have for your club? You have to. You must pick one. Sparky, Pards, <laughs> or Howie? That would be Howie. Steve Howie. I was Eddie thinking Howie. I was just <laughs> trying to think of Steve Howie. Howie. Well, I'll take Steve Howie. He'd name me as number two. Yeah. Yeah, you, uh, would, you don't need to explain it. You have to pick one of those three. Uh, Eddie Howe. I'd take Hughes at the moment, as long as he brought Shakiri with him. You wouldn't want any of those guys. No, Eddie Howe. Eddie Howe. There you go. But a night out with Pards. <laughs> <laughs> All right, speaking of new managers, Swansea have a new head coach who, as I understand it, will be working alongside Alan Curtis. And by the way, I apologize to whoever I offended out there when I suggested that, you know, they now have some guy named Alan Curtis. Of course, Alan Curtis was a great Welsh international and so on. But he's not the next great Welsh manager. Probably not the great (laughs) Welsh manager. But um, the new manager is Francesco Guidolin. So Francesco Guidolin is a guy, he's now 60 years old. He made his name in, in the mid-90s, he worked his way up. He took Vicenza, he won the Coppa Italia with Vicenza, bounced around different clubs, never really got the job at a big club. Some people said that actually it was because maybe the same reason Martin O'Neill didn't, in the sense that he was considered a little bit studious, different, not sort of Jack the Lad. I mean, he's managed like a million clubs, but he was at Udinese, where he, he took Udinese into the Champions League, played some pretty nice football. He left Udinese in 2014, I think, uh, had some sort of advisory role with the club. And I remember when I spoke to him, you know, he said that he'd love to have a crack in, in England, uh, but he was also realistic that given his age and given you know, he, was, he was studying English, it probably wasn't going to happen. But now it, did, now it has happened. Roy? Yeah, it's, I think the first thing to say is that Swansea have clearly erred in sacking Gary Monk. Not does he he shouldn't have been sacked. That's a that's a difficult one to call. But because they obviously didn't hadn't even thought about who they might realistically get to replace him, which is very unlike Swansea. You yeah. never believe in the whole Bielsa thing. No, I think they thought about Bielsa and San Paoli, but I think they they should have probably done a bit of research and worked out whether they could get them or not. Right. It was realistic. Their, their argument is that they didn't see the need. They didn't foresee the need to sack Monk. I don't think that quite holds water on the grounds that they won one of 11 games at some point and in that run. It took about think, three months to sack him. Yeah, the stories that he was in trouble started in September. Yeah. If, you, if, you, if you look at that run, then then at some point it occurs to you, and on, we better work out who's who's next in line. Guidolin, I, I remember from the mid-90s in Italy, I spoke to, I remember speaking to, Gin, to Gino Pozzo about him uh, when he was at Udinese. Were you like five years old in the mid-90s? What, what, what do you remember? No, I was in my teens. Right. Yeah, come on, okay. crying out loud. I remember that Vicenza team played in the, uh, played in the, in the, in the played Chelsea in the Cup, in fact. Mm-hmm. Guidolin's Vicenza. Um, he is kind of a job in Italian manager to an extent but at Udinese he he did very well as you say I think twice they got, got, got them into the Champions League didn't they? I think into so. the, into the, the qualifiers, the qualifiers yeah. at one point they, they lost certainly one to Arsenal they may have lost both to Arsenal they seem to play Arsenal a lot for a while <laughs> the, uh, but he is he's quite attacking which will work with Swansea uh, I'm going to bow to your wisdom Dad whether he's a 4-3-3 or 3-4-3 man he is one of those guys who annoy some players, but one of those Italian guys who's hyper-tactical, who spends a lot of time in front of the blackboard, or certainly did in the past, or, or the iPad, I guess, now, with a projection screen, and he wants players who can play all sorts of different positions. He's done back threes, he's done back fours, he's done... You know, he adapts to the players, but he is quite demanding tactically. And I mean, when you heard that, the, the new... I mean, Swansea, obviously, I suppose, quite strangely for 
Premier League teams, or, or maybe it should be more common, but they have a very, very recognisable system that it's served them well over over various managers, and they have a very recognisable style as well. And the, when you heard this news, did you think, oh, well, that makes some kind of logical sense? Oh, yeah, okay. No, I thought the opposite. Um, <laughs> and again, not because he can't play that possession-based football, but simply because you, you hear so many people talk about how important it is to have Premier League experience, you need to know the league. I think of other guys. I mean, Pepe Mel is the first name that, that comes to mind. You know, foreign managers being thrown in there who've never worked here can be difficult. And obviously they are... I mean, as we tape this, they're in the relegation zone. If this is a pondered choice, then they would have looked at it, and I think it can be a good fit. If it's kind of like, oh, shoot, you know, it's been three months now without Monk, and Curtis is, is still here, and let's go and get the first guy we find, you know. The, only, is, not so the only other thing is that no one in this, in this Premier League can defend. So if you can bring in a coach who can teach you how to defend even vaguely, you're probably staying up, to be perfectly honest. Joining us for this segment... We're uh, very fortunate to have Matthew Syed on with us. Now, this was the week that FIFA banned Atletico and Real Madrid for two transfer windows for irregularities over the transfer of minors. It's basically the same thing that happened to Barcelona. Long story short, for those who don't know, who don't know this, is so basically you can only sign a guy from a, a foreign country if he's a minor in one of uh, three circumstances. One is uh, if their family moves for non-footballing reasons. One is if the uh, if you're right on the border and they're from uh, less than 100 kilometers or 60 miles away, uh, but across a national border. And the third is if uh, if it's a transfer within the European Union, because it's of course it's one big market. Yay! Now, first of all, Roy, we need to knock this on the head, and I'll, I'll go to you first because you've written uh, uh, extensively about this. While the ban is for two transfer windows starting for, from this summer and then next winter, there is probably a greater chance of Chelsea winning the Premier League this season than there is of Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid actually being banned this summer, right? Yeah, so I think uh, what's important is that Atletico came out straight away and Enrique Cerezo said that they would contest it. Jose Angel, Angel Sanchez then came out this, the same evening, I think, and said that Madrid would take it, first of all, to the FIFA appeals panel, then, if necessary, to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, as Barcelona did. I think, realistically, Madrid, Real particularly say that they have done nothing wrong and they say that this is FIFA. I think they, it will be upheld. That process of appeal will take eight months if Barcelona's is... Yeah. It, took about, it took about eight, eight and a half months, months yeah. in Barcelona's case. Barcelona banned in April... The, the FIFA appeal was rejected mm. in late August, and then the cast verdict came December 30th. So all this nonsense, like, oh, no, they're stuck with Cristiano Ronaldo, and Gareth Bale won't be able to move, and all this stuff, it's all absolute nonsense, right? Well, it's not nonsense. I think it's worth... I think it has to be taken into consideration, the fact that that eight-month process would end in sort of August, early September. It, I think most likely, well, no, it Real will get October. this... They will get this summer, January now, and this summer to, to act, and then they will effect, effectively be banned for all of 2017. And, and, right, and if it's upheld, yeah. If it's upheld. I think that's the most likely thing. But I do think Real probably have to factor it in, because there's no guarantee that the process will take eight and a half months, just as it did for Barcelona. You can't guarantee that. They have to think about it. You can't. I would say. Yeah, but they think about it now, but what they won't do is ban them sort of in the middle of the summer from one day no, to the next. No, so basically, no. if they're not banned by... by June 1st, July 1st, yeah. I think it's even earlier than that, actually. I want to start with you, uh, Matthew, because I was interested in the, the, the defense that Barcelona put up at the time of their ban. It's going to be quite different from Atletico and Real Madrid's defense, because Atletico and Real Madrid, we're going to say that, no, we were entitled to sign these guys. 
Barcelona's defense was something like, well, this ban shouldn't exist. This isn't protection of minors. This is, this is harassment of minors. Why should a young Korean kid, simply by virtue of the fact that he was born in Korea, why should he be denied the, the sporting opportunities that a young Catalan kid would enjoy? We're not exploiting them. We take good care of them. Uh, yeah, I'm very sympathetic to that argument. You, you can sort of understand the, the basis of the rule, which is that young people will be put under great psychological pressure at a, at a very young age if their entire family decamps to a new country in order for them to pursue their footballing careers. But I, I just feel that the best judge of whether or not that is too much pressure uh, weighed against the opportunity that would exist in joining an academy with the track record of Barcelona should be down to the parents. And if the parents feel that it is worth moving and that the young person can cope with it and that they're going to have uh, an opportunity they wouldn't otherwise enjoy, it seems to me it should be the parent who makes a decision. I would rather uh, the authorities, FIFA, although not the best governing body uh, in sport, should be more spending its time looking at regulating the academies to make sure that young people are properly looked after, that they can pursue their education in addition to their football, that there's proper mentoring and supervision and loco parentis rather than a blanket rule that I think Barcelona are right to say does prevent young people from pursuing opportunities that they wouldn't get in their own home countries. Obviously Barcelona have a sterling track record but the rule exists I think probably for two reasons. One is that to mention the Korean kid that Barcelona got he was at a club in Korea and because there's no compensation paid at that age there's no mechanism for it they're like well we looked after this kid from the time he was eight and now we get nothing back and he gets to go to Barcelona, that's not fair, but largely because there's a feeling that, you know, it's great if, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Kim from Seoul uh, make this informed decision about their kid, but the problem starts when, you know, somebody goes to Nigeria and rounds up 50 kids and puts them in a container and hopes that one out of those 50 will go and play in the third division. You can't have minimum requirements, but you can't have, you know, one rule for Barcelona because they're virtuous and another rule for, say, Huddersfield. Who are also equally virtuous, just Clearly. less uh, gifted. Yeah, I, I agree with what Matthew's saying to an extent, but also I can see why the rule is in place. You say the parents are the best judge, but if those parents are offered a new house in another country or a new job or if they're being really old school, big brown envelopes, um, it's almost impossible for them to make the right decision um, based, based on the child's interest. Um, and also I think it's important to protect um, the smaller clubs there's this growing trend for the biggest clubs just to sort of swoop up all the young talent and evidence suggests it's not necessarily the best to developing those children. Chelsea, for example, take the best kids they can and their record of actually developing them beyond 18, 19 is very poor. There's a lot of myth, myth-making about youth development in football. There's, Barcelona's argument is, is an extension of the same argument that's used behind EPPP, which is the Premier League's theory. Elite player performance plan. The catchily titled EPPP, which is that if you gather as many talented young footballers together as possible, that will help them. Now, there is, without question, a logic to that, that, that it drives them on. If you speak to people at, at Barcelona's academy, which is no longer La Masia, and people need to stop calling it La Masia. The, La Masia. Well, whatever you want to say, but it's not there. Uh, that's now just a building. If you're a Barcelona kid, training is more used than a football match because you only play two or three proper games against proper opposition a year. Most of the time you're beating tiny Catalan regional clubs 15-0. It's training that, where, you, where you pick up the edge. So there is a logic there. Look at the pattern of, of, of youth development in football. The countries that produce players are not the ones with state-of-the-art facilities. They're not the ones with centralised plans. 
it's it sounds really romantic and a bit ridiculous, but Brazil and Argentina, they they don't have these facilities, they don't have these overall these sort of overriding structures. I don't think that it's necessarily a the, the sort of panacea that it's presented as. I would personally ban all international transfers under the age of 18. Unless you can prove specifically, the burden of proof has to be that it's in the young player's best interest. There's, I mean, there's different ways of doing things as well. I mean, one of the clubs on, on my patch, Middlesbrough, have got an absolutely fantastic academy system and it's been brilliant for, for 20, 30 years, 20 years. And, I mean, they have a self-imposed ban. I, I'll, I'll, I'll get the details wrong but that's never stopped me before um, <laughs> but I think they have a, I think it's a 40 mile radius or 50 mile radius from, from the Riverside Stadium, that's where they recruit their players from, now Teesside has an absolutely brilliant youth league I think it's the youth, Teesside Youth League I think it's the biggest in Europe I might be wrong on that but I think that's right so they've got the benefit of that but that's part of their philosophy and that's part of their identity is that they're you know they're taking it seriously at at home, and there is then a benefit for the for the local community too, because they're because well, they're producing they're producing educated young men to, to to kind of go back into society, whether they make it or not as footballers. Should the clubs really be the ones growing the talent, or you know are they the best suited to to do it from from a social perspective? It's always worth bearing in mind that it's a vanishingly small proportion of those who make it into the upper echelons of football. It's extraordinarily small. So it's very, very important that the young players and their parents are aware that the probability of them making a huge amount of money from football is small. And that increases the motivation to want to do lots of other things like education and other kinds of personal development in case they don't make it. But I also think that it is in the interest of the clubs to create individuals who are rounded and have wider intellectual capacities because I think that makes for better footballers and also reassures the player that when they get to the end of their career, there will be exit routes out of football when they get into their 30s and they have retirement rather than something which is a terrible tragedy in English football, which is, a, you know, if the... Uh, ex-pro, the organisation that looks after ex-professionals, if their statistics are even close to being accurate. You know, lots of bankruptcies, lots of divorce, lots of other issues, which I think is a real um, scourge in, in English football. How about some quick hits? Chelsea draw 3-3 at home with Everton, thanks to a dramatic late equaliser from their captain, brave John Terry. It's Roy of the Rovers stuff, except it was probably offsides and it wasn't that long ago that a 3-3 draw at home to Everton would be seen as a complete failure. Husey, if you're Goose Hiddink, what positives do you take? Um, John Terry's still alive. They don't like losing. They've got this kind of muscle memory that tries to get them out of trouble in desperate situations but their attacking was awful for 60 minutes the defending was bad for 90 um, and they do not look like a team who's going to get up that table and stay there Starting the game with Sask being the only guy who can pass on the pitch when you have Oscar and Matic and Mikel I mean, what, what the hell you're playing Everton at home right? Yeah it was a strange team his obsession with Mikel is getting a bit worrying Yeah I know I want to see Loftus-Cheek man Everton probably should have won this game uh, Rory Roberto Martinez or Martinez as you call him confuses me I thought they actually played relatively well, but then they somehow conceded three goals and they let the game uh, slip away. Several people I know and respect have told me that he's actually a complete fraud of a Van Hal type nature. I don't want to believe that. Can you convince me otherwise or shed it, some light on his issues? He, he, he is not a fraud. That's, that's ridiculous. But his, Thank you. his problem is that his team keeps conceding goals in the last minute of injury time and occasionally they need to be a little bit more cynical. I think his his... 
his loyalty to his principles is obviously admirable. But there are, there's always a time and a place, and I don't like. I hate it when teams like run the ball into the corner in the last minute. But occasionally, you kind of see why why they do that. It's it's happened to them twice now that they've let in late goals. A third time would be unfortunate. I might have told this story before, for which I apologise, but there is a fairly high-profile manager who tells a nice story about Martinez. He says, I want Roberto to speak at my funeral because he'll persuade the audience that I'm still alive. <laughs> uh, Tottenham Hotspur stay on track, beating up Sunderland 4-1. But George, I had an eye on this game and I thought Sunderland actually better than the score suggests. Can you give me some hope that they'll stay up? Because I, I've kind of been enjoying this Big Sam-led mini-revival. Well, if you want hope, they've done it before, year after year after bloody year. Um, exactly the same thing. Um, I think they've got the right manager in Sam Allardyce. They've got a good, exciting young keeper in Jordan Pickford. So that's about it, really. Jordan Pickford, who's played, what, one game? Yeah. Two games? Well, I'm looking for... I suppose I chose to answer a different question, or a shorter question was, can you give me some hope? They've got a goal machine in Jermaine Defoe. Yeah. They have a large man in Ola Toivonen. They, they have a large man. <laughs> they have an even bigger Gav, man in Gav, quarters. Gav. Spurs stay on track, beating Sunderland 4-1. <laughs> yeah, okay. but, they, but they actually play... You give me hope. I they have a large man. They've got a large man. <laughs> no, I actually thought they were they're, they're, they're well organised. I, yeah. I think both Brown and O'Shea have kind of jumped the shark and I'd like to see them get uh, centre back. They've but, got one. They've got Jan Kirchhoff. Jan Kirchhoff. Yeah, no. Um, but... Yeah, but maybe they need another one. I, I, I don't. This is a good point. I've forgotten about Kirchhoff, but they're not bad players, and and they're well set up. I saw them at Chelsea, where he got everything wrong. They're quite bad. I struggle to find the third team to go down after Villa and Newcastle. What? New, uh, New, Villa, well, Newcastle, and Sunderland. I'm going to be out of a job. This is going to be my last appearance on the podcast. Well, Middlesbrough coming up, aren't they? Yeah, but Gateshead. No. Manchester City romped to a 4-0 win over Crystal Palace. Husey, you can either praise City and tell me if they've rediscovered their mojo. Or you could uh, tell me why Palace seem to be in free fall now and if it's just God punishing Alan Pardew. <laughs> could well be. City are getting better. No coincidence that Aguero's been fit-ish for a month now and he's started to score goals. When him and Silva are fit and firing, they're, they're a different team. They just need to now be, be consistent um, and put together back-to-back wins, which they haven't done for a while, which is... Leicester City are held at Aston Villa 1-1, but they sort of contrived to throw this one away uh, with Riyad Mahrez missing a penalty and then conceding a silly equaliser. Rory, they're still tied with Arsenal for the league lead. This is the same question we've asked every single week. Are they running out of steam? No. Thank you for giving a different answer. They Le- Leicester aren't, are probably not going to win the title. It's worth noting that if Riyad Mahrez draws his penalties, they're four points clear of Arsenal at the top. So th- th- they are... Three points clear. No, it'd be two wins rather than two draws. Stores against Bournemouth and Stores against oh, Villa, right, four right. points. They w- I, th- I still, like everybody else, expect them to run out of steam at some point. I think that Ranieri said that Mahrez is finding it harder because he's getting much more attention from defenders and he's finding it difficult to cope with that. But th- I think the way this season's gone and the way they're set up, I wouldn't necessarily expect them to fall away sort of quickly. I think they will fall away, but it'll be a gradual process. They're still joint top. Who's, who's going to catch them? Because exactly. Spurs and yeah. United, Liverpool, none of them can put a run together. Well, didn't Van Hauser at United can still win the title? Yeah, but he's got, you know. All right. Newcastle United overcome West Ham, who of course won the World Cup. Uh, they now have John Joe Shelby pulling the strings in midfield. George, is this what's known in technical terms as a game changer? Um, I don't know. 22 years of reporting Newcastle would suggest no. and think, <laughs> but, but he was very good. He played a couple of brilliant balls forward. There was a bit of spike, spikiness there. And 
do you know what? It was just it was just a fun day at St James's Park, and it came on the back of a decent performance in the in the draw with Man United. Uh, it was just nice to be there. Can't say that too often. <laughs> it's so pleasant because of the personal touch to it. Gab, one for you. You tro- you wrote a truly wonderful column about the European Super League and how it might not be de- dead and buried. Tell us more. Thank you, Rory. I will happily do that. Uh, so uh, there's a man named Karl Heinz Rummenigge who used to be a stellar striker for Inter Milan and Bayern Munich, uh, who is also the uh, chairman of Bayern Munich today. But he's the president of the European Clubs Association, and uh, he spoke out at a meeting last week in Milan uh, where he said, "Well, I don't think you can rule out a European Super League, whether under the auspices of uh, UEFA or uh, privately run by the clubs." and this is the probably the, the nightmare that keeps a lot of people up at night because we thought that we'd lick this in the late 90s, uh, but it would be some sort of NBA-style thing with the 20 biggest clubs in Europe, although we'd probably refer to them as franchises. It would be closed system, no promotion, no relegation. And they offered some supporting arguments for this, such as the fact that the NFL generates uh, some 5.4 uh, billion pounds a year in TV revenue, whereas the little old uh, Champions League only manages 1.2 billion. So clearly... Uh, They're leaving a lot of money on the table, and the big clubs are pushing for this. Now, are they going to threaten a breakaway, whatever? No, I think they're posturing. But I think it's the old thing when, you know, you ask for a lot so that you can get a little. I think what they would like, and they've made no mystery of this, is perhaps a different allocation of resources, perhaps extra spots for the bigger teams in the bigger leagues so that the gap between rich and poor can grow. Perhaps even some kind of wild card that you could play. So, for example, if a historically big club like AC Milan or Manchester United fail to qualify for the Champions League, one year they can say, aha, look, we're United, you will let us in. Or we're AC Milan, you'll let us in. I think that's what they're angling for. For all his ills, I think UEFA have done a pretty decent job of keeping this idea at bay because the Champions League revenue has grown and whatever. But right now, of course, Platini is banned from football. And uh, the Secretary General, uh, UEFA, Johnny Infantino, is busy running for president of FIFA. So there is a bit of a power vacuum. And um, if Platini doesn't come back, and I'm not sure he will, uh, there'll be new elections. And depends how big club friendly the new president is. I think this is one situation to keep an eye on. Rory, we gave you a task earlier in this show to come up with... uh, a person of the size and body type of Christian Benteke who actually presses well. Have you come up with one? No. Okay. Can you think of one? Well, I, 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 I wasn't asked to think so of no. one, but if somebody wants to, uh, wants Emil, to tweet Emil in. Hesky pressed well. Hesky, yeah, Hesky pressed quite well. Yeah, that's true. Hesky to press. Think about Emil Hesky's. He wasn't quite as big as as you. No, but neither is Benteke. Benteke's. Uh, if you if you meet them, they're, I mean, Hesky's <laughs> a big bloke. If you meet footballers, they're never as big as they looked on TV. Hughesy gets three house points. There you go. Well done, Hughesy. Didn't have houses at my school. Really? Barely had buildings. They had bungalows. Did they have yeah. houses at your school? Yeah, of course. Right, that's all we've got time for today. Many, many, many thanks to my excellent guests today, Rory K. Smith, Matt Hughes, coming down all the way from the Northeast to be with you today, George Culkin, and, of course, Matthew Syed. Now, you please, please go and press that subscribe button. We're going to be back next week. Uh, but, by the way, before I go, remember, you can get exclusive football highlights for free as part of your subscription. It's just £12 for a 12-week trial It's pretty neat. You don't have to sit around and wait for uh, Match of the Day or Sky or whatever it is that you want to watch. You can see the goals. Just search The Times online. Bye-bye.
Your subscription to the Times and the Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.